This is Brand USA Talks Travel, elevating the conversation about international travel to the United States. Here's your host, Mark Lapidus. Who or what inspired you to go into immigration law? So I was inspired to do immigration law because of an excellent grade in law school. I went to law school to be an environmental lawyer because I grew up on a farm and I really wanted to help take charge of the environment and protect trees. And then in law school, I did really well in immigration course, and that led me <laughs> to get a great job at a firm doing immigration law. I'm very pleased to welcome Alan Orr, founder of Orr Immigration Law in Washington, D.C. Before starting his own practice, he served as corporate counsel for immigration at OpNet Technologies Incorporated and at Riverbed Technology. Alan helps individuals and employers with a full range of immigration issues, including temporary work visas, permanent residence, and U.S. citizenship. I first had the pleasure of meeting Alan because he's also a Brand USA board member. Welcome to Brand USA Talks Travel, Alan. Glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. I know you have a regular show on many media platforms. You're always appearing. I see you popping up in different places, and we'll ask you about that later. But first, I'd really like to know, how does your specific expertise help inform your role on Brand USA's board? Right. So in the Brand USA is surrounded by the issue of immigration because many individuals that want to come to this country require a visa. It helps me to bring that aspect to the board to let them know what the challenges could be that could prevent them from meeting the goals of having the amount of visitors they want within the United States. Makes total sense. I never thought about it, but of course, we're always talking about visas and the difficulties behind them. And we all know that it's a huge issue that the U.S. government's trying to deal with. What are your thoughts on the subject at the moment? Where are we with that? The issue that we have is that we are still in a place of fear. After 9-11, we sort of shifted the way we see the world. And we are still fearing others as a challenge rather than welcoming them as a friend and a potential growth. So as we sort of matriculate through this next century, I hope we broaden ourselves back to where we were in the beginning, where we see people as an opportunity for friendship and growth rather than a challenge for security. When you're at a cocktail party and you meet new people who work in the travel industry, what do they typically ask you about immigration law? Well, the first thing they want to ask me is, what's the one fix? And that's the biggest thing to sort of move away from. There isn't one fix. It's a combination and a process of sort of thinking through exactly what needs to happen. And then they sort of have two edges of it. One is, how can we make sure that meetings can happen here on time when you have people coming from different countries with different visa appointments, which is always a challenge. And that's really just the scheme of making the meeting far enough in advance. And that's about planning. The other issue is, how can we make sure we have enough workers here to make sure that this facility can continue to run? So those are the two edges of the swords. And right now in our immigration law, there's really a challenge for differently skilled workers. Everyone wants someone to have a degree, but we know in a lot of places people might not need a degree, they might need a skill. I'm going to show my ignorance on this subject immediately. Do these interviews have to happen in person or can they happen virtually? Currently, all the interviews happen in person. And that's one of the challenges that we need to do is to invest ourselves in technology. A lot of the applications that I file are still done through the mail rather than online like in many other courts. We need to move forward with that. The State Department has tried a new process after COVID to do some interviews. But part of what the State Department is, their, their task is to sort of evaluate the individual in person to see if there are any concerns. And that may be hard to do via electronic medium. When I saw the statistic, it blew my mind. The U.S. immigration system now faces the biggest backlog it's ever had. Over 1.5 million cases pending immigration court. We could spend an entire podcast on just this topic. But briefly, Alan, is there a path to fixing this enormous issue? So we're the United States and we can face any challenge we want to. We have money and resources for all the things that we decide to do. So if we choose to clean the backlog, we can. And part of that is just something that happens every day in a company of saying any case before this case, we're just going to approve and then we're going to adjudicate these cases going forward. So it's a business decision that needs to be made. 
part of what we tell the world is because there is this backlog, you want to be here. And something that young, the younger generations are saying is, no, if I'm going to have to wait this long, I don't want to be there. I can go somewhere else. And those countries such as Canada, which is right there by us, is making it much shorter to get a process to get into Canada than it is to get here. Talk to me a little bit about visa wait times. So that's one of the biggest challenges that we sort of face right now as an immigration practitioner for companies who are planning meetings that require a lot of multinationals to appear. So the best way to sort of plan that is to look at what the current wait times are from the State Department for each region and then plan your meeting just 30 days past that. There are ways to expedite applications based on the business need for the United States, but not for recreational travel. So it's all about planning and understanding what you are facing. And many times that requires knowing if a visa is required or not required for your country, which is also found on the State Department webpage. So knowing what their processing times are is number one. Knowing where and how the processing times happens is also important because people may have to travel some distances to get to an embassy and what's involved in sort of the cost and capacity of that. And also checking to see if the individuals already have a visa to come to the United States, because if they have one that's good for five years, they may be able to use that visa to come instead. So it's all about planning to get here. And while there are long challenges to get to the United States, as I said before, it is always good to go ahead and process the visa just to have it as a safety area, just in case you want to travel in the future for something else. So if you miss the date to go to Disney World this year, go ahead and finish the process and then plan to come the next year because you will have gone through the process and you'll have the visa. So as you well know, Brand USA is an international organization and we do hire people all over the world. I've never asked this question eternally, but you can answer it as an expert. To get a work visa for somebody that wants to actually work for us, how difficult is that? What's the length of time from most countries? So because of the resources of Brand USA and our relationship to the government, it's pretty quick, probably within 30 days for most cases if someone has a relationship. If it's an H-1B visa, then it's a lottery system. So it's a one in 75% chance that you might get that. So that's also one of the challenges that we may face, which may be why a lot of individuals may be working for Brand USA outside of the United States in their home country. The one thing to understand is that working for Brand USA only requires a visa if you're actually in the United States from the immigration side. There may be tax issues to be discussed, but only workers in the United States are required to have visas to work for U.S. companies. We have tons of individuals, especially now these nomadic visas where people are working from all over the world. And so they have to look at their current jurisdiction to decide exactly what the tax requirements may be for their area. And that would be the same thing for anybody that wanted to work at a local destination, right? Absolutely. Obviously, homelessness has an impact on travel decisions, and it's something we don't talk about much in the travel industry. I'd like to hear your thoughts about immigration and homelessness in the U.S. So people who are experiencing that, I don't think it's something that's unique to immigrants. I think it's something that's unique to every place where we sort of live in humanity. And that's also a choice that we decide if we're going to let individuals be treated as individuals and have some of the basic needs that they have. Such, And there are many places like New York and Chicago that have ordinances that sort of address this, that when you're in their facilities, you are to have so many days of housing provided by the government. So one, I think experiencing that is a choice of the government and we can sort of resolve that. I don't think immigration causes that. And I don't think that that's something that's unique to the United States. I think to address it, we need to decide what our priorities are. And we have a lot of empty buildings and a lot of empty spaces that we can use now. You have an extensive background as a pioneer and advocate serving the LGBTQ community and as the first African-American president of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. What are the biggest opportunities you see specifically in the international travel vertical that you could advise destinations about? I think it's great that we continue to promote our diversity and show what opportunities exist within this country because people will want to experience that to see what it is to take that experience back to their home when they see someone doing something in a different way. Specifically from the continent of Africa, LGBT individuals are often seen as people that need to be killed or people that need to be jailed for long periods of time. So when they can see the success of other people and how it doesn't actually break down the community, it's a forward way to so people can see in experience and in practice that these things don't hinder growth and hinder society. 
within the immigration world, I think people often think of immigration as a Latin issue or a Hispanic issue. And having a black face, someone who was born in this country, sort of speak to those issues sort of shows it's important to everyone to have a seat at the table when we talk about who we are going to be in the future. As a prominent figure in immigration law, how do you balance your legal practice with advocacy and community involvement? and also just have a life. <laughs> so for me, I was sort of born in the spirit of the movement. At a very young age, I decided that I was going to go to an HBCU, Morehouse College, in which uh, Martin Luther King was a graduate of. And I decided that my life would be dedicated to social movement. Originally, I thought it was going to be an environmental law, but it wound up being in the immigration forum. And as long as people are suffering, my soul can't rest. So for me, the wonderful thing about my job is not only do I get paid to help individuals get visas, but then I change their lives forever. I got individuals visas 20 years ago that led them to green cards, and they still send me holiday cards today because it changed the trajectory of their family and their opportunities. That's so nice. That's a power that many people don't have. Are there any community initiatives or advocacy work you'd like to highlight? There's so many in the, in the moment. One of the things that I also sort of work on is understanding and, and growing cultures close together. And right now, one of the things that I'm really focused on is helping native-born African-Americans understand that Black immigrants are not a challenge to them, that we are also part of the same community and we are a part of the Black diaspora. So regardless of where the ship stopped, we don't need to sort of challenge ourselves by saying this or that or the other. Secondly, I want people to understand what Brand USA does. Brand USA brings individuals here to help the United States economy, and all those individuals are foreign nationals. And if the United States consistently says immigrants are bad or we don't want immigrants, that doesn't really help the bottom line on what Brand USA does and all of the industries that sort of benefit from the great thing that we have in this world of being part of the global connection. I'm probably generalizing in saying this, but it seems to me that a lot of immigrants come in, get citizenship, and then they want to close the door behind them. Do you see that happening or am I overreading? Every generation has had a different intro of immigrants that come from different countries, and then they may be challenged by the next group in sort of that sort of what we call assimilation, which really isn't assimilation, but it's really the formation of the United States. So as your population becomes less, you sometimes have those challenges. But we have many cultures, such as Japanese nationals come to this country, work for many years, and then go back to Japan, right? One of the things we have to understand is that it's great to be part of this country and that we are lucky that people are lining up, walking a thousand miles, waiting 10 to 20 years to try to get a green card to pay our taxes. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful place to be in. So why do we need to make it so difficult? Because this country is not crowded. How do you get people out of the urban cities? The great thing after COVID is that we've seen people return to the places where they might not be before. And so such as I have, I was in DC, I was in New York, I was in Connecticut. Now I'm in Tennessee and not in Nashville, Tennessee, but in a place called Eagleville, Tennessee, which is 45 minutes from Nashville, a town that maybe had 200 people. Now it has 800 people, one stop sign. So I think people are discovering the great thing about our country is that it offers many different things in many different places. And one of those things is just space. We have so much land, so much great water, so many greenery things, so many great paths. And Tennessee has brought that expression to me of saying, well, I can remember what the South was like to have this fresh air, to see the sunrise, to see the mountains, to not wake up and have traffic every day or pollution. Those things are wonderful about our country. And with the technology moving us forward, we may be able to work from different places. And so you now see tons of people leaving California, New York and Connecticut, returning back to the South for various reasons. What advice would you give to young leaders looking to use their voice to advocate for underrepresented communities? I say to everyone, find your passion. Everybody has a different calling and whatever that is, your passion may be cakes or cupcakes or whatever it is, but use that in the right way and make it such that it benefits society. And I understand that there needs to be things at all different levels. There needs to be a Chanel and a Walmart. So whatever your passion is to serve that community that you're in, find your place and do that. Be the best you you can be rather than trying to imitate someone else. Last week on the podcast, I had Chip Rogers, the CEO of the American Hotel and Lodging Association. Chip said that there's still many, many unfilled jobs in the travel industry, especially in the hotel industry. 
Talk to me about temporary and permanent work visas, because I don't know a lot about that subject, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't either. Maybe that's part of the solution. So one of the things that the challenges that we face is that we don't have a visa for them. We have these temporary visas that run out immediately and challenge it. And so in some ways we say we want to have this great economy and we want to test the market and trust the market. And then we need to protect jobs. But then we have this shortage of jobs. So it isn't really making sense always for the employer. And what it does is it makes the employer either fail or move to another country. So we need to make a visa category for these individuals that's long term and that is not allotted to a quota because in any season you may need more visas based on the economy. So those things need to work fast. Even with the Department of Labor now, there's something called Schedule A, which is a direct way to sort of get in based on labor shortages. They're doing now, they're updating that list, which they haven't done in 20 years. When we think about immigration and the opportunity, remember that the refugees that come are people who are doing asylum, also can fill some of these jobs if we're able to get them to work permits. And so that's a challenge that we have. Getting someone a work permit does not mean they get to stay forever or have a green card. So we need to sort of use our ability and the system to meet the needs that we need to have to meet the needs of the American people. We've all been to places recently I've been to places where the restaurants close to come inside because they don't have enough workers. You can only go through the drive-thru, right? Or the hotel can only change the rooms every other day. So those are things that we don't need to bring in our economy when we have options. I bet you talk about all these issues with your regular media appearances. I'd like to hear how those happen and what it's like and what you've been on. So I've been on all the major networks, CNN, Fox, MSNBC is more of my regular gig. I do Sirius Radio. I'm a contributor there. I'm a contributor to a Chicago radio station and a LA radio station. I do a lot of foreign media. And the way that came about was through the seven years it took me to be ALA president. People found that I had a unique way to sort of break down the issues regarding immigration in a different perspective. And also one of the things that I offered to them was a different face, right? I'm a black American who's able to speak on these issues that surround not just people who are Hispanic or people who are Indian national or people who are extremely wealthy. I practice in all of those fields and I'm able to bring that together. And it made a great opportunity for me. Also, back in Morales, I was a debater. So it's useful for me to be quick on my feet, to be able to adjust to whatever question is being asked to sort of move the conversation forward. And I imagine you get hit by both the right and the left. I do. I get hit more by the right than the left. And I increase the conversation. I think it's important that we go back to having these conversations to understand what the foundational points are and what individuals' perspectives are. We might not agree, but at least foundationally, we can look factually at the facts and decide what the facts are and then have a decent conversation about it. Because in all cases, regardless, even in the South, I found that people really respect humanity, specifically when it's their hairdresser, the person helping them on their farm. Then it becomes a different situation than the odd person that they don't know. When it's someone they know, the situation situation changes and what they're willing to do also changes. One of the things I can tell about you already, Alan, is that you are able to really succinctly explain something and you do it very clearly. So I understand why all the media outlets are after you. (laughs) Thank you. I would do it too. You're really good at it. What message or advice would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who may directly be impacted by immigration policies? You know, it's specific to the travel industry, I would say. America is still a great place to come. The United States has so much to offer from coast to coast. I've been in almost every state. I've seen almost every national park. I think there is so much opportunity here. So while the wait for the visa may be long in some cases, it is well worth it. And it is well staked because you'll get a visa for five years in most cases, which will allow you enough time to see everything you want to see here. And when you look around the globe at opportunities and safety, and while you hear there are concerns in the United States, just realize the concerns here are much less than they are other places. This is still the safest community I've been in, in all of my travels around the world for all the different things that I represent with regards to race, color, and sexual orientation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alan. I really appreciate it, and I hope it's the beginning of many conversations. Thank you so much for having me. And that's Brand USA Talks Travel for today. I'm Mark Lapidus. Thanks for listening. 
Your feedback is welcome. Email us at podcast at thebrandusa.com or call 202-793-6256. Brand USA Talks Travel is produced by Asher Mirovich, who also composes music and sound. Engineering by Brian Watkins. With extra help from Bernie Lucas, Danze Karaoke, and Casey D'Ambra. Please share this podcast with your friends in the travel industry. You may also enjoy many of our archived episodes, which you can find on your favorite podcast platform. Safe travels.